Would you like present him directly to Clinton? I had dozens of meetings with President Clinton uh, where we went over a draft that I prepared. And lots of people collaborated on jokes. But I will say this. I mean, the real challenge of writing a humor speech in the White House is that in the entire White House, there are maybe 10 people who can write a joke. And there are 250 people who can kill a joke. You know, <laughs> so you try you try getting the speech through that gauntlet. Yes, that is the voice of Mark Katz, former joke writer for President Bill Clinton. And he's our guest today on Comedy History 101, where we school you in comedy. I am Harmon. Hello. How is everyone? Now, Mark is our guest today on Comedy History 101, where we school you in comedy. But this interview I did with him, I recorded in 2016 for a story I wrote for Vice on people who have written jokes for presidents. And in the case of Mark Katz, he wrote jokes for Bill Clinton, along with writing humorous speeches for Al Gore, Madeleine Albright, Barbara Streisand. His essays have appeared in Time, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The New York Times. And as I mentioned, I recorded this interview in 2016. So there is a lot of 2016 presidential election references. So keep that in mind. And sound nerds might note that the interview sound quality not that great. This is back in the day before I had the Yeti Blue microphone, and you could split audio channels via Zoom. But the interview is crazy interesting because how often do you get to talk to someone who wrote jokes for a president? But before we jump into the episode, remember to take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a few stars. Come on. Support the podcast. Help us out. What does it take to put up a star or three or four on iTunes? Also, a quick plug. On Tuesday, December 5th, 7 p.m. at Under St. Mark's Theater in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, I'll be presenting my show, AI vs. Human Roast Battle. Yes, come on out and see a machine learning AI take on a human comedian in a comedy roast battle of tomorrow. You can find out more about the show at HarmanLeon.com or on the social medias at HarmanLeon. And now, without further ado... You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to Comedy History 101. If we can just like jump right in, how did you get started with writing for politicians? Well, let's see. It's a long story. The short answer is I started out as a wise ass and I worked my way up. I've had a career that's kind of careened through uh, politics and journalism and, you know, comedy. And I started writing humor for politicians on the Dukakis campaign, which I know sounds like a standalone joke. 
but it's true. <laughs> you know, I was just a kid out of college, really, and uh, wound up getting picked out by the head of the communications office because I was writing funny entries in the daily campaign reports that were published in the infancy of the Internet. And he came to find me because he thought our messaging needed more humor in it. And that's when I kind of launched my, you know, put me on this path of kind of melding humor sensibilities with strategic sensibilities. Then how did, from there, you hooked up with Bill Clinton? How, how did that come about? Uh, just through the company you're working with? Or? The Scottsdale campaign, I shared an office with a guy named George Stephanopoulos, who went on <sighs> to, you know, be a big cheese in the Clinton campaign and wound up, you know, going to, hooking up with the Clinton campaign and being on call throughout those years to write jokes for Bill Clinton. And then when he won, uh, I kind of wormed my way into the role of being the guy who wrote the president's speeches at the White House Correspondents' Dinner and the Gridiron Dinner and all those things, and I did that for eight years. Well, I'll say, I, and I, I don't know if you came across it, but I actually wrote a book about my adventures in the Clinton White House from the point of view of the guy who wrote the jokes. And, and what would be like the general process of, of that? Was was Bill like very sort of instrumental in the process, or would you just sort of submit it to him or well, like we, one we, of his advisors yeah. to choose the jokes? It was it was a learning process for everyone. The, the curve that mm-hmm. he had, the tra- learning curve that he had to travel across was he had to learn that, you know, self-directed humor was actually his best friend. He he could not, in the very first meeting I had with him when we were going over White House Correspondents Dinner, he could not understand for the life of him why he would stand up and tell jokes at his own expense. Made zero <laughs> sense to him. Zero uh-huh. sense. He looked at me like I was like I was crazy. So, but over time, he actually came to understand, you know, why being, you know, self-directed humor is actually the way to go. And once you've been self, sufficiently self-deprecatory, you've, you've acquired the right to be self-deprecatory on behalf of others. I see. And then what, what are some lines, you know, such as like in the early days uh, that you wrote that oh, really God. stand out? Oh, God, God, God. Now you're really taxing my memory. <laughs> actually, well, one comes to mind, which is actually one of my favorite jokes. If, in fact, if you go, if, uh, you know, have a website that actually mm-hmm. hasn't updated in a while, but it actually tells the story of this joke. It's it's the it's the William Henry Harrison joke, and yep. the the, jo- the joke is so the his first White House correspondence dinner corresponded precisely to his first 100 days in office, which were right. disastrous. But uh, his first 100 days in office were an absolute hot mess. I mean, just mistakes out of the box right and left and and everyone was kind of you know so around the time of his hundred days office there were a lot of articles about you know how he'd gotten off to a disastrous start so i wrote i wrote a joke saying i don't think i'm doing that bad after his first 100 days in office william henry harrison had already been dead for 22 days or however many days it was (laughs) right but but that's the joke that really you know yeah, so now I've come to regard William Henry Harris as the patron saint of self-directed humor because, you know, in the way I tell it is if you would, if you had imagined his on, – on his 100th day in office, his secretary – press secretary at the time was uh, D.D. Myers, if I remember correctly. If she had come out and told that joke, you know, at a White House briefing and told that joke and gotten the laughs and then she said – but let me really tell you some of the accomplishments we've actually been able to pull off. 
you know, in these first 100 days. You know, she would have bought back so much credibility that those next words out of her mouth would have resonated all the more and been taken so much more seriously. So the whole point is, you know, once you concede the obvious, you buy back credibility, and credibility is valuable political capital. I'm trying to use the As far as, like, you know, writing for that, what, what is the process? Like, how many, you know, the time frame and, like, how many jokes written to, like, how many jokes use, like, sort of ratio? Well, jokes jokes is actually the wrong idea. I mean, I, I mean you're talking someone who's written, you know, more jokes than I care to admit to, but mil, you know, hundreds yeah. and thousands of jokes in my life. But jokes are really, it's really about what's the idea for the speech? What does this mm-hmm. speech need to be? You know, and then come the jokes. you got to figure out, jokes are an execution, but a speech right. needs an idea, you know? So what's the idea? And that really is where... You spend, you know, I used to, I remember, you know, in the old old executive office building is this huge, huge building. And I wore out 10 pairs of shoes over the course of eight years, (laughs) walking around the perimeter of this building, just mumbling to myself, what's the idea? What's the idea? What's the idea? Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And eventually you you arrive at an idea for the speech um, and then you start writing jokes that execute the idea you know, in a, in a funny way. And then would you, would you like present them directly to Clinton or? Yeah, um, I, yeah, I had, I had dozens. And, no, yeah, I, I had dozens, dozens of meetings with President Clinton uh, where we went over uh, the draft that I prepared. Now, I, I absolutely, you know, worked with a lot of other smart, funny people, you know, in the White House and outside of the White House, you know, and lots of people collaborated on jokes. And, and you know, so I was, you know, working with a lot of great people and, and a lot of people involved in the process. But I will say this. I mean, the real challenge of writing a humor speech in the White House is that in the entire White House, there are maybe 10 people who can write a joke and there are 250 people who can kill a joke, you know. <laughs> so you try you try getting the speech through that gauntlet, right? And so that was the real challenge always. And I heard the story about Madeleine Albright, where I think it was a you that was writing a speech for her, and she couldn't nail. I mean, it was a question of the material. She just couldn't nail the cadences. I'm not sure what story you heard, but I did write a speech for Madeleine Albright. In fact, before I wrote for President Clinton, I wrote a speech for Madeleine Albright, and that is, and which was well received. In fact, President, that was my entree into getting to write a speech for President Clinton, because mm-hmm. he was there when Madeleine Albright. So I don't know where you heard the story. I mean, I wrote about it in my book, but maybe I don't know you heard it. Oh, no, no. What I heard was, I interviewed this guy, Bruce Cherry, who's written Bush, and I think he said he heard you speak that she couldn't get the cadences down. So I think something, someone brought in like a professional comedian. That's to, exactly right. Know, kind of, I did. Yeah. So, that, so he, he, he correctly recalled my story, which was that, we read through the first draft of her speech, which mm-hmm. was fine on the page. And then when she read it, it was like watching someone deliver a hostage tape. I mean, it was just <laughs> hard to watch, right? She just had no no feel for it whatsoever. And I was panicked. And again, this was my first gridiron speech. The first the board turned out to be, you know, a dozen or so, more than that maybe. But so I had this idea. I was friends with a guy who was a stand-up, and it was really he was actually he was a stand-up and a voiceover talent. So, so I said, Jeff, would you mind coming with me to the United Nations for my next meeting with uh, the ambassador of the United Nations? So he said, Sure. 
you know, who would say no to that? So I bring him to this meeting and say, Madam Ambassador, whatever his title was at the time, I'd like you to listen to my friend Jeff deliver your speech. He stands up at the lectern in the conference room and delivers the speech with all the comic cadences that, you know, a, a professional comedian, and I thought he was good, and especially good with voices and, and, and rhythm. And she got up, and he did it, and then she got up, and did a very good impersonation of him. And some, and only someone pointed out to me afterwards, you know, why the idea was retroactively so brilliant. I mean, this is someone who speaks six or seven languages, right? She can pick up a cadence, right? So when she was rehearsing for this speech, and yeah, I've, I've forgotten this story. I've been told it's wrong, but she, when she rehearsed the speech, she listened to a tape of him giving her speech. <laughs> So on Oops the Podcast, join me, comedian Julio Gallerati, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. So that's how we did it. Wow. And and, and, and segues from that is like what, what what politicians and presidential candidates and the presidents do you think are natural comedians? Did you find that Clinton is a natural comedian? Like just sense of timing? Like uh, a- I describe Clinton. He's got the charisma of a hundred men, you know, and, and, and you can't replace that. You can't teach that. And that is his great, that is his God-given skill and talent. So, you know, the speech in his hands became his own, first and foremost, and he delivered it as only he could. You know, as far as a comedian goes, no, he does you know, he's, you could, you know, like most people, you could leave him in a room for an hour, and he, you know, with a blank piece of paper, and he couldn't write a single joke. You know, I, people used to complain to me, he goes, you know, you, you mean the president doesn't even write his own jokes, people would say? I'd look at them and say, tell me the number of hours in the day you want your president writing jokes. Just give me a number. Yeah. So that usually shut down that line of complaints uh, pretty, pretty quickly. Al Gore, you know, I wrote a couple of speeches for Al Gore. He had hidden talents that no one knew existed until we unearthed them, but he actually did very well. And I think President Obama, you know, actually, his last few speeches, his last speech, for a while my critique of Obama was, he looked like a guy who was reading the jokes off the, really enjoying himself immensely as he read off a bunch of really funny jokes his staff had written for him. But it didn't <laughs> sound like his, it did not sound like his voice to me. It sounded like he loved them, he embraced them, he could read them another 10 times and still crack up just as loudly. So they spoke to him, but they didn't speak for him. You know, you, were, you weren't listening to his voice. I think his last, few White House Correspondents singers, he kind of overcame that hurdle. I actually thought I heard his voice. Me. As far as like other clients that have reached out, have, have you written like across the aisle for both Republican and Democrat? I have written for a few Republicans. There were dual non-disclosure agreements involved. And yeah, once a while, you know, the truth is I don't really write for politicians that often uh, anymore. But, you know, I kind of, you know, got a great education doing that and, um, you know, cut my teeth, obviously, working in the White House. So I learned a lot of invaluable lessons, you know, trying to solve problems with humor in that high in the high stakes arena of the White House Correspondents Dinner. And, you know, I apply those lessons, 
you know, every day ever since. I do all kinds of different speech writing and presentation projects. You know, generally speaking, the, the projects I'm working on, you know, people are looking to them to be more entertaining and funny and creative and have greater license than they otherwise might. But they're not all humor events. They're all kind of, you know, today I kind of use the part of my brain where humor comes from to solve problems for, you know, CEOs and other public people. You know, it's not it's not about the joke. It's about, you know, what's the presentation? What's the idea of this, you know, this, this event? And then sort of, I mean, I think you sort of answered this question, but the importance of uh, uh, humor in political speeches, do you think there has there been candidates that have won because of, you know, you mentioned problem solving, but also just the connection that humor has to people? Look, it's a, it's a great shorthand. You know, no one's won because they're the funnier candidate. But, you know, look, like everyone talks about likability. You know, humor is, it's not about the joke of the humor. Did I make that person laugh? But humor is a great way to kind of say, it's a form of communication unto itself that gives the audience credit. The way I describe it is, you know, humor flatters where spin insults, right? Spin <laughs> is... Spin is, I think you're just dumb enough to believe this, right? And humor yeah. is, I think you're smart enough to understand what I'm really trying to say here, right? And it's not easy, and, you know, you know it, and I know it, but it's it's not easy to say, so let's try it this way, right? Mm -hmm. And you do it with humor, and you do it with humor. And it kind of is a signifier of intellectual honesty. If If this person is being honest with himself, and I trust this person to be honest with me. But you know, a lot of times you hear people you, you hear people say this, you say stuff that's so outrageous, they can't possibly believe that when you hear them say that. And yet they're happy for you to believe it, right? That to me yeah. is insulting, genuinely insulting. And to me, you know, the part of the conversation that I was involved with in the political dialogue was the exact opposite of that, you know, where you're giving people credit for having a brain. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. And what do you think of the current candidates as far as the kind of just humor laced in, in their speeches? Do you think they're being effective with humor? Well, look, uh, you look, you just saw the Al Smith dinner, obviously, and that was, you know, yeah. very well done. You know, here's, here's, I, I've, I've, I've established, I've spent some time thinking about this stuff, as you can tell, right? But, uh, yeah. to me, there are, there are three paradigms. I call it the, the legal paradigm, the humor paradigm, and the political paradigm. The legal mm -hmm. paradigm is concede nothing, right? Don't d own up to nothing. Make them prove that you're in the room, right? Own up to nothing. Concede. And the humor paradigm is concede everything. Well, you know, if it's if it's funny, if it's honest, it's funny and it gets a laugh, do it. The political paradigm is if it's smart, do it. Right. If if it if it's advantageous, do it. And a lot of times, the advantageous veers towards the humor model as opposed to the, the legal model. Right. For all the mm -hmm. reasons I just told you about, conceding the obvious. So, you know, if I had a critique of generally speaking, Secretary Clinton's relationship to humor, you know, she she's tends towards the legal paradigm. Don't concede mm -hmm. that much, but. You you saw the you know but you saw the Al Smith dinner and obviously she went a lot further than than she usually does and to and to her benefit and she's going to learn you know because it's it's plain to see that conceding more brings 
bigger dividends. And as you move out along the risk-reward ratio of what you're willing to concede, there are bigger rewards to be had. So I think she's going to find that out. And then on the opposite end, what about as far as like Trump at the Trump has dinner. thrown out Trump has thrown out the entire political playbook as 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 it existed before 2016, and humors you know within that political playbook. That nothing he does corresponds to the standard operating procedure of using humor to kind of win and influence people. I mean, he's when it's it's a very caustic aggressive. To me, he sounds like a rack pack comedian, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, strewing all those in his path. First of all, it, it really does feel like a Don Rickles routine to me when I, he, a lot of his, his cadences um, and his mannerisms really are kind of taken right out of a rack pack comedy routine. So there's nothing kind, there's nothing self-effacing, there's nothing self-directed, uh, there's nothing honest about them. They're insulting. They're, they exist to hurt. So, you know, humor is probably the wrong word for it. But he does use a lot of cadences of humor. Right. You know, when he, but, look, you know, he, loves, he loves being up in front of the, the audience, you know, at the rallies. And, and you know, you know, what, you know what, what does he keep on saying? That I can tell you, right? I mean, that uh, I can tell you is, is right, out of, right out of Catskills or Borscht Belt or Vegas Strip routine. Obviously, like at, at the Al Smith dinner, he was like reading off of a piece of paper. So obviously, he had joke writers or writers in general right. to write his right. speech. What does that say that that do you think that he actually selected those jokes or someone selected them? Sure, him? sure. No, no, no. I, I promise you that there were mm-hmm. jokes that would have suited served him a lot better that he crossed out. I promise you that. The speaker is the ultimate filter, and he makes the speech his own with the choices he makes. You know, when I, I'm working with someone and they're, they'll, they don't like the joke, they're not sure about the joke, they have questions about the joke, invariably I wind up asking them to take the joke out because I know if they don't believe in it, it's not going to mm-hmm. work and it, will, and it will be undermined in some way or come out backwards or sideways in ways you can't anticipate. Until you believe in the joke, you really, you know, you really should not be saying it out loud. So and in his case, it was like, he probably had a huge batch of material to work from, but this was his final edit, what he thought. Was well, right. I don't know who he's working with. I'm sure he's working with, uh, you know, the guy, you know, the McGurk and, you know, Jesse Waters. I mean, I don't know who he's working with, right? You know, I'm sure, you know, these guys have a brain in their head. Uh, they probably wrote some stuff that would have would have checked all the boxes of what these jokes are supposed to do. And I'm sure, you know, they were left left in the trash can trash can of history. Yeah, I mean there was a good article about the writers that were working on the Comedy Central roast for him. I read I read that article. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's all you need to know. And my critique on a Hillary's speech was that I thought it was I thought it was a good speech. It was a great but for a red Sharpie and a, a stri- slightly bigger idea, it could have been a great speech. If I had edited that speech, I would have crossed out every joke that wasn't a clear admission on her part. Self-deprecatory, something that conceded something she had not otherwise said. And I would have crossed out all but two or three of the jokes at Trump's expense. Because to me, making fun of him at this point is like, 
poking a bear in a cage. You know, it's it's practically you know he's a guy with he's he's a guy with I hate to say it, you know, but he's a guy with real issues. I mean, he's a a borderline personality. Forgive me for saying it, but you know, to 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 kind of to try to provoke him to me is borderline cruel at this point. It's so I thought a much more elegant version of her speech would have been much more focused on the self facing mm-hmm. self-revelatory, and really just do two or three jokes that gave him the opportunity to laugh at himself in public. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, the, speech I would, that's the speech I would have edited out of the pages she brought to the podium. And then, and then I guess the opposite, if you really, if like mm-hmm. Trump really would have let you, you know, have the tight reins of editing his speech, what approach would you have? Like, I would have, I would have gotten no, I would have gotten no further than anyone else would have gotten. I might, I would have pleaded with. Eventually, I would have been escorted out of the room by his security. That's what would have happened. So I, I don't doubt that any, any, it was within the uh, grasp of any human to give him the help he really needed. Yeah. So he just pretty much strongholded the material through that what he wanted. That, to that's do, my guess. What that's he was wanted guess. to. Yeah, and and what do you, I mean, just a, just a in general question: Do you find writing for politicians rather than say writing for John Stewart is more rewarding? I mean, this is total. It's a it's a it's a, it's a it's a it's a different exercise. What I what I liked mm-hmm. most about writing for politicians was uh, pushing out the parameters of what they were able to say in public, um, mm-hmm. being part of the best strain of our political dialogue, where politicians are telling more truth. Saying the things using humor, they would otherwise strenuously deny the other 364 days of the year. So that, to me, was the thrill of it. Kind of, you know, and look, you know, there are a lot of really super smart people writing really sharp jokes, and I was proud to be in that fraternity, you know, of people attempting to do that. But the ones that, you know, the ones I was working on were to, to help, you know, the president kind of expand his ability to connect and broaden out, you know, what he's able to say. Say, say the tough things. I mean, you know, are you talking to the speechwriter, the joke writer who helped the president navigate his way humorously through impeachment? And the only person to ever do that before me was Andrew Johnson's joke writer, and he kept very poor notes, right? So I was on my own. Just any other takeaways about the whole experience or advice for anyone who wants to write super based material? Well, you know, when you're doing this, you're lending, you know, it's, it's kind of a mind meld. It's, you're lending your sensibility to, you know, someone greater than yourself in the case of a president. But so, you know, I would stare at a blank screen and saying, if I were this guy, what the fuck would I say? And you just stare huh. at the screen and stare at the screen and stare at the screen. And you put yourself in the shoes. It's 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 the ultimate it's it's the ultimate act of empathy, kind of lending your sensibility to the situation of another and see and, and presenting it to them and say, Here, maybe this'll help. And if and they'll pick they'll take the ones off the page that they think will help. And that wraps up our interview with Mark Katz, former joke writer for Bill Clinton. You can check out Mark's site at soundbiteinstitute.com. And also, quick reminder, December 5th, 7 p.m. at Under St. Mark's Theater. Come check out my show, AI versus Human Roast Battle. Yes, a human comedian will be taking on a machine learning AI 
in a comedy roast battle of tomorrow. And you can find out more about my tour dates and upcoming shows at HarmanLeon.com or on the social medias at HarmanLeon. And as always, remember to take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101. And we will read your comments right here on the podcast, such as this, a comment from Linda on the history of gallows humor. Linda writes, I wish you would revisit this topic and how important it is in high-stress jobs, i.e. doctors, emergency responders, cops, and how it fulfills an important psychological need for people in these occupations. Well, thank you, Linda, for your comment. And until next time, bye-bye. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone. Excuse me. Comedy History 101.